Praise be to God. So we're in our second week looking at Ruth, specifically looking at Jesus in the book of Ruth. It's going to wrap up next week, chapter 3 and 4, and then Mike will be on a couple weeks after looking at Job, looking at Jesus in the book of Job. And it's amazing to see Jesus so clearly and so often in this chapter if you study Jesus, if you're looking for Jesus, uh, there's a lot of parallels that I get so excited about, but I have to wait to the end. So the beginning is the hard part. The beginning is where we, we, we open to Naomi and Ruth. They both lost their husbands. Naomi lost her son-in-law. So Naomi's down three, lost her husband and two sons. Now she has her daughter-in-law, sorry, and, and so Ruth lost her husband, and she goes with her mother-in-law back, but she's a Moabite, and you don't, you don't if you're a Moabite, you don't go back to, to Israel, you don't go back to Bethlehem because you're a foreigner, and you're going to be mistreated, and this is the time of judges where there's no king, there's no law, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. We don't know anything of that anymore. We have perfect law, right, in our culture, in our no, we, we see how, oh, wow, you, you read that verse in Judges where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, and now we get the privilege um, to endure a little bit of that and see some of that, even where we thought, man, this isn't the country I grew up in. The things that are happening and the things that are people and other people are like, no, this is the country you grew up in. It's just the other side of the tracks or other side of the street. You didn't hear about this, but this is how we grew up. So the interesting reality is whether... You, you can relate with Ruth, whether you're a single mom, whether your husband passed away or left you. Maybe you're a new believer like Ruth. Maybe there's some, some tragedy. Maybe there's a diagnosis that's, that's come your way and you're wondering how to take the next step. Maybe there's a tragedy in your family and you don't know what the next step is. Maybe you're a freshman in high school like Alex Rodriguez that got cut from the baseball team, and that's your tragedy. That's all that you're like, I'm worthless. I didn't make the baseball team. Alex Rodriguez shared that when he was in ninth grade, he got cut from the baseball team, kind of like Michael Jordan got cut from the basketball team. And he joined a baseball club when he was 15. He hadn't developed yet. He was 6'1", he said, 160 pounds. And he said he met the coach, and the coach came to him, Coach Hoffman, and he said, Alex, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have a decent sophomore year. You're going to have, it's be a rising sophomore. It's going to be a good year, not a great year. Then you're going to lift weights. You're going to get in the best shape of your life. And Rodriguez said, from that day forward, his life was changed. His coach said, you're going to lift weights, get in the best shape. Then you're going to go and play in the Olympics, representing America, play baseball, and then you're going to be drafted into the MLB. And, and from that day forward, he had a vision where he was momentarily in tragedy. He saw this vision that other people, namely this coach, saw in him, this potential. In our lives, when we face tragedy, where we get our identity determines the next step, doing the next right thing. If, if we feel like, man, there's no hope. Last week we looked at Naomi, who knew God, who grew up going to church, hearing about God, grew up going to synagogue and, and hearing about all the great things 
God did, how God took his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them through. And when there was no water, Moses hit the rock and split and water shot out and and gave everyone water in the desert, which doesn't happen, by the way. If you've ever been in the desert, you can't just touch a rock. And this is a crazy miracle. And she's like, that's amazing. And all of a sudden, there's a drought and her husband dies and there's no food. And they left and went to Moab and everything's a mess. And where's God? She's bitter. Tragedy, where are you looking? What's the next step? What's the vision? Where's hope? So she goes back, bringing Ruth with her. And when I've been humbled, multiple times, not just once, but every time I'm humbled, it's, it's the reminder of, you're right, I can't do it on my own. And I should stop thinking I can, but then I go somehow find my way back into thinking, oh, this is a way, it's my way, and it's probably the way, and I'll just keep doing, no, I can't do it without God. And when we're humbled, the point of God humbling us is to remind us, hey, I have this. I know tragedy has struck. I know your husband died. I know there's no food. I know you lost your job. I know your marriage is hard. I know your finances are a mess. I know everything's falling apart. But guess what? I'm God, and I love you, and I'm coming for you. And I need you to be humbled so that you see my hand. Because unless we're humbled, we don't see God's hand extended towards us. We keep getting bothered by his hand extended toward us. We keep hitting it away because it's, you know, you've been around kids, whether you have kids. You, you, no, it's my way. I'm going to do it. It's like, hey, you're going to go take a scooter off 10 stairs. Yes, what could go wrong, Dad? And you put your hand out to stop them or to, to pause, and they slap it away, and they go full speed off the 10 stairs. We've all done that figuratively or literally. Maybe that's why my wrists keep getting taped up because I did that too many times and didn't realize falling will have later problems in life when you put your hands out. God humbles us. His hand is for the humble, though, to, to exalt us, to lift us up at the right time, but his hand is against the proud. As we see time and time again, and namely here, we see how God's hand is extended towards the humble and lifts them, provides for them, and protects them. But his hand is against the proud. First, we see Ruth's faith on display. As we see verses 1 through 13, perhaps you can identify with Ruth. She's a new believer, doesn't have any money, left her family, her culture. Everything she knew, she left it behind. She went into Israel, namely Bethlehem, and and she's following Naomi. And we see Naomi introduces Boaz to us, who's a relative of her husband, a worthy man, of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. In verse three, she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So Ruth is the Moabite. The author reminds us she's out of place. She's not in her country. There's a big problem for Moabites because they can be verbally, physically abused, or worse, killed in Israel. And so she, she's not sitting waiting for Naomi to just go get food stamps or figure out where the next Echo meal is or where they can get free burritos on Tuesdays or Saturdays in, a, in our central coast. Like she's, she's eager. She's like, hey, what's the plan? Where do we go? And Naomi's like, well, there's this, there's this guy. He's kind of related to us. He's a part of the clan. 
you go glean. You can go collect aluminum cans after they're done eating lunch, turn those in, which growing up, that was a cool thing to do. You know, my dad and I loaded up the long bed 1980 Toyota pickup, went to the recycle center, got a little slinky and a candy. It was great. I did that the other week, and they looked at it like, this, what are you doing? We don't sell our recycling to China anymore. It's all trash. Unless you have copper or some other stuff to recycle, like this doesn't, we don't do that anymore. And the, the humbling thing is, for her to go glean, that might provide food for today, but what about tomorrow? It's not going to improve their standing in society. It's, it's even could be costly to her, going among field workers as an outsider, subjecting herself in a patriarchal society, a single woman among men. Like this takes great faith that she's like, yeah, I'm going to go find this field, find this guy. It's all going to be great. I can relate to Ruth. It's like, hey, God's cool. We're going to follow God. Just a bunch of faith on display. And Naomi's probably like on her knees, like, hey, protect her, be with her, guard her. May she find, may she find Boaz. So she's not only an outsider, but Ruth's faith is true faith, and it leads her to action. So faith on display. We see, she says, let me go glean. Let me go find this field. In Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22, it says, well, when you reap a harvest, according to the law, you needed to leave what you didn't get the first pass for those that would come behind you, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hands. So it was good for you to obey God, leaving leftovers. And he talked about it even with grapes. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. Don't do a second pass. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. You shall remember how I humbled you and how I extended my hand and saved you, so then you can also bless those as I've blessed you. Those who are sojourners, those who are fatherless, those who are widows, I'm going to provide for them with the leftovers of your crop. Don't do a second pass trying to make sure you get all of your crop. I mean, as a farmer, you're like, man, I don't, I spent all this money, all this time planting, protecting, guarding, making sure my crop's there so I can pay for the mortgage, the new truck, this, the vacation. I got to go get a second pass of grapes. I got to go, no, no, leave that for the sojourner, the out-of-towner. Leave that for the fatherless. Leave it for the widow. Let them be provided. I'm the God who provided for you. I'm the God who's going to provide for them. Just trust me. I got this. And so the question pops up for us, especially men, are, are we kingdom-minded? Do we acknowledge that everything that God's given us, he owns, and we're stewards of it? That's the first thing we see about Boaz's character. The law made provisions for the poor, the widow, and the sojourner. And so Ruth was qualified to glean in the fields. We don't know how well Ruth knew the law or if she was just completely by faith, going, hey, I can do this. Okay, I'll go gather some leftovers, picking up the scraps. But at least they could survive. We see that God's concern is for the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. In Exodus 22, Psalms 146, but as we know, not every landowner was concerned with the poor, the orphan, the sojourner, and so this was at great risk, potential risk to Ruth to go try and find this field of this guy and then hoping that he actually had compassion on her. We see that she ends up meeting with, with Boaz 
And it's a combination of humility and grace that she receives. We see that the, the biblical writer emphasizes this humble heart that Ruth has as Ruth goes before humbly subjecting herself to whatever God would allow her to experience. And God is attracted to humility. We see that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble in James 4.6. 1 Peter 5.5, God's attracted in 1 Peter 5.5, God is attracted to humility. He gives it his attention, but arrogance and entitlement receive his opposition. His hand is for the humble and against the proud. As embarrassing and as difficult as gleaning and, and getting on your hands and knees and picking up the leftovers were, Ruth was doing that. And the report came as Boaz showed up to work. We see him inquire about Ruth, and they told Boaz about her and said, yeah, she's been working nonstop. She only took a quick minute to kind of get a splinter out of her finger, and then she went right back to work. Like, she's nonstop. This, this is incredible, whoever this woman is. And, and we see the, this phrase that this commentator Block argues is the most important phrase in this chapter. Um, in this book, even, he says, in, in verse 3, we read, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. So why does the writer of Ruth use the phrase, she happened to come, like just by chance? And actually, in Hebrew, it, it says that, by chances of chances, just by happenstance. But the reality that the author is trying to convey is, is screaming at us, see the hand of God at work here. It's the same hand that allowed the famine in Ruth 1. It's the same hand that provided the food in one, chap, chapter 1, verse 6. It's the same hand that brought Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem precisely at the beginning of the harvest. If they were any earlier or later, it just wouldn't be the right time. And God's timing is perfect in his providential hand and now has guided Ruth to the portion of the field belonging specifically to Boaz. And it's hard because when tragedy strikes, if, if you're like me, and like Naomi, she's like, woe is me, God has made me bitter. Just change my name from Naomi, which means sweet tomorrow, meaning bitter. This isn't God's, this isn't my timing, it's God's, and I don't like it. But God in his goodness and his plan allows horrible tragedy to bring about his divine purpose. And I don't know what that is. And then humbly, we can sit before that good God and say, God, this is a horrible season, I need you to get me through it. This is the worst season. I don't know how to take the next step or do the right next thing, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek you and I need your hand to do it and to get me through. And we see that reminder here that God has planned it. And so the author is saying, no, she didn't just happen. God planned her steps so that when she wanted to go left, he moved her right, right into the right field with the right man that would be the Redeemer. The one who would eventually, at his cost, at great expense to him, redeem Naomi, marry Ruth, and through the line that Ruth and Boaz started would be King David, which would be the line that Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world would come through. What a tragedy. What a dis 
disastrous start to a life that Ruth thought it was over and I'm just going to go follow her to God and, and we'll see what happens. We'll just go to a field and see if I can get a couple barley and make maybe some, some bread. We'll see what happens. God's quiet hand in the monotony and in, in the void of any miraculous interruption from God, God's hand has been working quietly in the background. It's not just the miraculous Moses hitting the rock. It's not the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. It's, it's just, hey, go to a field and pick up some grain. And God was working in that. We see her faith in actions as she obeyed and went. We see Ruth's life of faith began when she took refuge under the wings of the Lord in verse 12. Now we're introduced to, to Boaz and his faith. We see when you read the name Boaz, there's no other mention of anyone else named Boaz, and so there's a little bit of debate about what his name means, but it definitely indicates this idea of strength, kind of this, this strong spirit. In him, Yahweh is strength, this commentator said. So we see, obviously, he's a person of wealth, of great influence. He has these people over that he's over, and he shows up to work. And, and as the boss rolls in, he says, the Lord be with you in verse 4. We see that he probably began his day in prayers. He was studying God, getting to know God, and he, he showed up and he had created this culture of workplace where he started with a little devotion with his workers and said, hey, let's focus on God as we begin our work day. It says, the Lord be with you. And they didn't answer to him with the middle finger and say, forget you, boss. You rolled in with your Range Rover and we're here slaving away in the heat, getting splinters, picking up. And you roll in with your Starbucks and your after finishing breakfast with your friends, no, they said, hey, the Lord bless you. It's interesting to see the character when he greets the workers. The first impression we see, Boaz greeting his workers in the name of Yahweh. The narrator leaves out many details of every character, but yet decided to put this in. So that we would see Boaz repeating that covenant promise, I will be with you, which is woven throughout the entire Bible. Deuteronomy 31, 9, Joshua 1, 5, Isaiah 43, and fully seen when Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, says in Matthew 1 and Matthew 28, 18 through 20, who promises to be with us until the end of the age. It's amazing. It, Jesus came not saying anything new. He was reminding us of who he is, who he's promised to be for us, the, the Savior who will never leave us or forsake us. And so Boaz is saying, remember the presence and blessing of God in this field. Remember the presence of God and the blessing of God in this field. Remember the presence of God and the blessing of God in the tragedy that you're in, in the trial you're in. Remember the, the blessing and presence of God while you're on that mountaintop where everything's going great and you're just kind of that monotonous every day in, day out, nothing really changes, everything's kind of the same. Remember the presence of God and the blessing of God there as well. See, Boaz does not have this American kind of Christianity where he's freaked out, going, oh my goodness, there's no king. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Did you read what's on this newspaper? What about this news station? Did you see what's on Facebook? This pastor said this. Ah! 
He's not freaking out because he's not an American. He follows God. He's not going, what's happening to 401k? What's happening to the dollar? China and this did this with their currency. What are we going to do? He's saying, remember, guys, while we're picking up this grain, God's with us. He's saying, guys, check it out. Can you believe that today the sun rose and there's grain for us to harvest? God is with us. His presence is with us. This is such a good day. It's so good to see this simple and yet profound pointing to Jesus. Pointing to Jesus. Because we have to look not just in Boaz, but through Boaz to what God is doing and how he's going to bring about a Savior to you and me. To see this just amazing picture where he notices this one young woman and says, who is this chick? And his worker's like, dude, let me tell you, she has not stopped working. She's been working so hard. She showed up. She, she left these false gods to take care of her mother-in-law, and she wants to pursue our God, and she's working super hard. She hasn't stopped to just, for a second, maybe take a splinter out, and she's right back to work. And then Boaz strikes up a conversation in verse 8. Listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. Go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. What the young men have drawn. See, the foreman gives the report to Boaz. Boaz quickly goes, hey, Ruth, check it out. Don't leave my protection. Don't leave what I've provided. If you go anywhere else, you're going to be verbally, physically assaulted, probably killed. It's going, to be, it's going to be horrible. Stay here. I've already told the young men not to touch you. If they so much as look at you, I'll take them out. If you ever get thirsty, go get a drink of water. Now, I remember my first job in like a legit establishment and, and I was working hard, and I was like, dude, this is great. Next thing I do, I get evaluated, I get a quarter raise. And this other guy was also shown where the water was when you want to break, only he sat there for like half hour, hour, you know, and he kind of just walked super slow, in and out was where we were working. It was his job to clean, and it bothered me to no end, because if you know me, I don't, I have one speed, and it's like fast, so work or play, it's just go. And so I'm hustling, doing all this stuff. I'm, and I asked him one day, I'm like, why are you so lazy? And he's like, here's the deal. You work three times as hard as me, but you only get paid 25 cents more. So I'll just not work as hard. So there's certain people, as you know, you don't show them where the break room is. You kind of want to lock them out of it, right? Because they just hide away. But Boaz knows she's a hard worker. And so he's like, hey, culturally, you as a foreigner are supposed to draw the water. Culturally, you're supposed to be giving us, serving us, but this isn't how it's going to be under my protection and my provision. You get to drink whatever you want from what the men do. Again, he has integrity, doing the right thing everywhere, every time. We see that Boaz favors Ruth. After hearing these words, he instructs her, stay here, I'll protect you, which also echoes when Ruth goes and gives a report to Naomi, and she says, hey, you need to stay in his field, because if you go into the other field, they're foreigners, they're going to hurt you verbally, physically, you might end up dead. Like, stay in his field, it's so amazing, you pick the right field, which we all know God directed her to the right field. 
And her response is humbly in verse 10, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law, basically saying your faith in God is on display by how you cared for your your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. It was all told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. If you, if you know the New Testament and you know about Jesus, it's interesting because the, he came to fulfill the promise. He came to give his life. He came at great expense to him to provide that protection, to, to purchase us as sons and daughters and, and to provide. And he came and to bless us. And we see the beginning where he shows up and says, the Lord be with you. Remember the Lord in this field, his presence and his promise to never leave us. And yet Jesus was the fulfillment of that. And then Boaz, as he began in prayer, and then he listened to the report of who Ruth was, then the time comes for them to eat, and he invites her over. Not only does Boaz give Ruth work, but protection in that field from even his own workers, she's welcomed, and and we see for us contemporary readers, it's interesting to see here that Boaz institutes the first anti-sexual harassment policy in the workplace. In the Bible right here, he's like, hey, don't bother her, don't don't even look at her the wrong way. Don't say anything the wrong way. Here's the protection I'm providing for her. And we've used this acronym to get our minds around how God's blessed us to bless those around us. And the bless is an acronym. It's beginning in prayer. We see that, that Boaz did that. He didn't have just a Sunday Christianity where he took God out of a box for 24 hours and put him back in and went in his secular life. He, everything was spiritual. And he walked with God. He began with prayer, shows up. Hey, guys, remember God's presence and promise in this field. And then he listens to her needs, listens to her condition, listens to who she is and why she's there by her faith. And then the third thing is eats. Boaz blessed Ruth with a meal. He ate ate with her. He said, hey, come over here. Grab the bread and dip it in the wine. Again, we see Jesus we see the illusion of Jesus with the woman at the well where, where Jesus asked the woman, hey, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, I would give you water that would spring up to eternal life and you'd never thirst again. And Boaz says, hey, drink of the water these guys draw for you. Under my power and protection, I'll give you this. And now Boaz is telling Ruth, hey, get the bread and dip it in the wine and eat. And as she's done eating... There's even leftovers she she tucks away for her mother-in-law. Pointing to Jesus and the communion, pointing to Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000 where the disciples ate their fill and they had leftovers. See, God is not a God of of barely, but God is a God of abundance. And God is saying, no, I've protected, I've provided, I can fill you, satisfy you, and I know Naomi has need too. And then... I just don't know what the response was from, from Boaz's 
his workers, because Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean, in verse 15, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. So as we see after the meal, then it's serving one another. And he serves her and says, hey, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And then verse 16, also pull some out of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. He's saying, hey guys, let her, make sure she gets first pick of everything. And then by the way, all the bundles you did, yeah, unbundle them and throw them on the ground for her. It's like a worker, I'd be like, can I just give it, can I just load it for her? Can I just deliver it to her? Why do I need to unbundle it? That's more work for everybody, Boaz. Like I know we're supposed to serve her, but it's that. We don't want to make her look like a fool any more than she already is. Let's, let's, let's give her the work to do, which is amazing at his service to her. He's trying to share everything he has with her. And that's the last S of the BLESS acronym for us is not just sharing food, but we share, as Jesus said, the food, we share his body. We share the blood. We share the fact that he came to give us himself as a sacrifice. We get to share that in Christ we are blessed to be a blessing. We see John 3.16 that everyone loves to hold up. But it's a shame because if you read till 21, you'd see the whole heart of God that God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus came to reveal, you have to believe in me to be saved. You're already running away from God, and I'm trying to chase you down. I'm trying to show you that I love you, I forgive you, I have a purpose and I have a plan for you, and this is the judgment. The light came into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Just like in the days of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. All of a sudden, light shows up, and the, the works of darkness are exposed, and everyone's mad that they can't just do whatever they want. And Jesus says, no, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God has prepared us for good works to do. Boaz had a good work to do, and he did his good works, clearly seen that his works were carried out in God. And anyone who comes to God has an opportunity to be a blessing. Begin in prayer, listen, find out where they're at, invite them for a meal and then serve one another, and then share the gospel. They're already condemned. Share the good news that they need to believe in Jesus to be saved. Galatians 6.10 says, Paul's telling the church in Galatia, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone in your house. No, that's added by me. He says, let us do good to everyone. Your neighbor, your enemy, your boss that's trying to get you fired, your spouse that's making it hard on you. Do good to her. Do good to him. Do good to everyone, always. And then he says, especially those who are of the household of faith. Do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. God did not forsake. God promised his presence would always be with us and he would never leave us or forsake us. And that promise was fulfilled 
when we'll find out the conclusion next week, but when Boaz ended up marrying Ruth and their line brought forth Jesus at the right time. But this theme of Redeemer, when, when Ruth told Naomi and Naomi said, man, that's awesome. I'm so glad you found Boaz. In verse 19, after she gave what food she had left over after being satisfied, verse 19, her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I have worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. One of our redeemers. See, this idea of redemption. We see that in the New Testament, the Passover lamb really takes front and center as John 1, 29 says, as Jesus showed up, he's the lamb of God who ultimately takes away the sins of the world through the payment of his own life and blood. In the Old Testament laws, redemption often happened through a commercial transaction, which we'll see next week, where there's a payment to, to buy back property or slaves. In the New Testament, as mentioned previously, this theme develops, and Paul says we're bought with a price in 1 Corinthians. We have freedom from bondage through the death of Jesus, the great Passover lamb. And Peter says we've been redeemed not with silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. We can cite more references all the way to Revelation where Jesus is worshipped as the lamb who was slain for the sinners from every tribe and tongue. See, the, the beginning of God's great rescue plan to redeem every woman, man, and child from the entire world was saying, hey, there's a, a guy in Bethlehem, an Israelite, who's going to marry a Moabite, an outsider. And through that marriage of different races, of different cultures, to see that God desires all people of all tribes and tongues and all nations to, to worship him. And we see this link between redemption is, a, is really a part of family language and it continues through the Old Testament where Isaiah describes God as the maker, husband, redeemer in one verse, Isaiah 54, 5, and later uses the, the term father and redeemer in one verse, 63, 16. It's in the case of Ruth and of Israel, the relational bonds grow tighter after the redemption. And Ruth and Boaz, Ruth's relationship involves increased unity when they get married and start a family. We see that idea of adoption that Paul plays out in Romans 8 and Ephesians 1. And because we're adopted as his sons and daughters, we share in the inheritance now where the Holy Spirit has sealed us. The Holy Spirit's gifted and empowered us to do the good works that God's prepared beforehand in Christ, that we would walk in those, that people would see the good works and glorify God. And that spirit cries out, Abba, Father, praying to God, even when we don't know what to pray, even when the spiritual battle's waging and we're just like, what's going on? Why is this so hard? We know that God's promise, like Boaz said, may the Lord be with you in this field, in this seat today. May you remember the Lord's promise to you and his presence is always with you. So how do you respond to this grace response that you are a sinner 
and everything you say, think, and do against God or somebody will separate you from God forever, and we need a redeemer. We don't just need a Boaz to, to hook it up every once in a while when we're hungry or provide some protection when things get a little crazy. We need a, redeem, a redeemer who's always with us, whose presence is always there, and whose promise is always gonna be good. We see this, this Hebrew word, hesed, is a big word, and it's translated really the con- compilation and combination of loving kindness, loyal love, mercy, grace, compassion, all of that in one word. It's amazing. This Hebrew word has said is basically in, in kind of slang, it's stubborn love where you can't outlast it. You can't abuse it enough. God's so stubborn in his love for you that you will never disappoint him. And it's this hesed, it's this mercy and grace and kindness towards you. His presence is always with you and his promise is always going to be for you. That we see in Psalm 23 and then in here, the kindness that Boaz showed Ruth is the kindness that God shows you. That no matter what you've done and no matter what you're gonna do, that's where 1 John says, if you confess you're a sinner, God's faithful and just to forgive you. And that's what Ruth and Boaz are pointing to. You gotta look through them to Jesus. They're pointing to Jesus who came and died in your place. So let's believe if you have yet to trust in Jesus and humble yourself before his hand that's extended to you to lift you up as a son or daughter and receive that forgiveness of your sins. Believe now. And if you have believed, as the elements are passed, we're gonna give you time to let the Holy Spirit maybe move, comfort, or convict you and say, okay, have you forgot the blessing? Have you forgot the blessing of the Lord's presence and how he's blessed you to bless others around you? Who needs that blessing? Who are you gonna begin praying for? Who are you gonna listen to a different way? Who are you gonna have a meal with this week? Who are you gonna serve in some way? And who are you gonna share the gospel with? Because that is why we're blessed to be a blessing for God's glory, stewarding his resources for our good. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word again and see how you began the rescue plan to send your Messiah, your Savior, our Lord, King of Kings, to redeem us, to to lay his life down in our place, live that sinless life we were called to live but failed at, and through the death and resurrection, his blood would Forgive all the things we've said, thought, and done, past, present, and future, so we would have a right relationship with you. We pray for those who are believing that for the first time, that they'd profess that to one of us so we could encourage and and walk with them as, as we continue to follow you. For those of us that have professed that, may we have a forgiving spirit. May we have a blessed spirit to bless those who persecute us and not curse them. May we bless them with our prayers, bless them with our words, and our acts of service that when they see the good works, they would bring glory to you and they would surrender and trust you because of the way that we love them, because of the way you loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.